Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Alon Kaufman. He is the CEO and co-founder of Duality Technologies, an impressive startup building tools that will allow companies to apply analytics and machine learning on encrypted data. In some recent keynotes, I've been describing the importance of data, various methods for estimating the value of data, and emerging tools for incentivizing data sharing across the organization. So the main motivation for improving data liquidity is actually the growing importance of machine learning. Many of us are familiar with the importance of data security and privacy, but probably not as many people are aware of the emerging set of tools at the intersection of machine learning and security. Alon and his stellar roster of co-founders are doing some of the most interesting work in this area. In fact, one of Alon's co-founders, Turing Award winner Shafi Goldwasser, will be giving a keynote at Strata Data San Francisco this coming March 2019. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Alan Kaufman, CEO and co-founder of Duality Technologies. Welcome to the Data Show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So you were previously RSA's Director of Data Science. So for our listeners who aren't really familiar with the security industry, by the way, RSA is one of these uh, leading companies in computer security. How exactly is machine learning and data science being used within the security industry? Great topic. I was lucky really to be with RSA and uh, for several years prior to my current uh, startup and actually led data science there across their portfolio. And security and data science really go together very well because in the security space, everything is basically data-driven. So there's not a a challenge of getting data. Uh, The problems are really big and huge, from financial fraud to malware to a disruptive kind of cyber attacks. And on the other hand, it's very dynamic and changes. So it's a data problem that has high value and very uh, dynamic. And that's actually a great source for machine learning techniques, which are really blooming in the last few years. Um, I can give a few like classical examples that we've used. So those that are more proficient in machine learning. So basic supervised learning methods are used there to do financial fraud detection and build systems that actually do now online fraud detection systems that continuously learn and adopt to prevent financial fraud. And there are tools like anomaly detection that are used to identify breaches or authentication challenges. So let's so they basically learn the normal user behavior. And when a malicious uh, party enters or someone is impersonating someone, so obviously something in the behavior of the impersonator is different. So techniques are like anomaly detection are used there. Technologies like clustering are used for identity management. So imagine that in a given corporate or in a, even in a, in a store or an online store, we all sometimes have many different usernames. So one big question is always to try and cluster all these entities or accounts and try and understand who stands behind them. So clustering techniques are used there. NLP techniques are used for um, identifying regulations and doing data governance. So 
uh, I can go on and on. There's basically in, in nearly every area of security, data science is now becoming a really critical component, even in the, dealing with the challenge of the shortage of manpower. So tools like association rules and the recommendation systems are being used now to help analysts, help incidents to be analyzed quicker and closed quicker. And basically, data science is, um, and machine learning is, is allowing the security industry to start to become more proactive and start to move from trying to protect to really uh, prevent attacks. So, so a lot of uh, interesting stuff going on in this industry. And I think in the last seven to five years, it's really been uh, the boom of data science and security. Obviously, if there's any specific topics, I'll be happy to. There's a couple of areas actually where I think that uh, I've noticed that the security industry is particularly bleeding edge when it comes to data science. The first is large graphs. Right. So for some reason, I think uh, I think in fraud detection, I think graphs are very useful. And then the other is uh, what you just alluded to, which is basically to help the analysts wade through more data. Uh, I think the visualization tools and security tend to be much better than what we normally see. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Just getting more visibility in what's going on in your network by itself is a great tool for security people. So it may not be like the preventive model, but definitely to investigate and to understand what happened. It's, uh, as you said, both graphs and visualization techniques are used there to even just understand what's going on. So if you would say like maybe a classical BI tool for a salesperson would be to understand, you know, what geography is selling what. So a basic tool for a security analyst is just to get visibility into what's happening. And that's why graphs, and different visualization techniques are used. This is even before, I think, the next stage of really taking it to the next step and starting to do preventive stuff and guiding maybe the analyst, you know, within these huge graphs and huge complex things. So a typical enterprise can have billions of different entities and data points. So just to even navigate through them in a clever and uh, and wise way, you could use techniques as machine learning. But but definitely visualization is is key for visibility and visibility is key for investigation, of course. As uh, with other areas of uh, data science and machine learning, you're starting to hear uh, companies start thinking about using deep learning in a couple of ways. One is uh, they may have an existing machine learning model. They may want to improve it, augment it, replace it with deep learning. And then the other is they want to see if they can incorporate new data types like images or, or video or, or things like that. So is, is deep learning starting to pop its head in security? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think deep learning is popping its head uh, anywhere where uh, AI and machine learning is mentioned. Uh, definitely, as you said, I, I think a few years ago, it started more arbitrary, trying out things, you know even taking files and from their bitmap, trying to uh, create the images that identify if it's malware or not. But uh, the more we, we proceed there, yeah, so images and video streams and, uh, and NLP stuff, as I mentioned, or uh, like using deep learning to read regulations to understand your data posture or your security posture or things that are, I've been using uh, in the recently. So definitely, sure. All right, so then fast forward to today, you started a company with basically like an all-star team in cryptography and you can uh, you can um, name drop and introduce them during the course of this uh, podcast so you were you had this nice job at RSA so what motivated you to start this company with your co-founders 
Yeah, <laughs> great question. So I, I like to say, you know, I, I was an AI person going into the security world and I left the security world worried about AI. And I'll explain what I mean. So, so really my background is in computational neuroscience, doing neural networks and machine learning in neuroscience and in bioinformatics. And, and over the years, I passed by uh, various different segments until really I, I took the role in RSA using AI to solve security problems. And as we started to move to the cloud and we started to offer more cloud options and so on for mainly more highly regulated industries like financial institutes, so we had like a cloud-based service that done fraud detection in the cloud. Uh, we and started to do sharing across different attack models between customers. So customers started to get concerned. How can they actually leverage all these nice AI capabilities or more general, all these kinds of advanced analytics capabilities on the cloud without you know, losing control of the data, without running into regulatory challenges in terms of sharing private information, and so on. So as my role in RSA, which I basically was heading both data science and the research and innovation, uh, we started to look at ways to enable companies to consume AI capabilities or machine learning capabilities in the cloud without really disclosing their data. And, and it turns out that, I'm talking now four or five years ago, that such techniques were being discussed in the academic world. And I actually, as my role of leading research there, we've done a few uh, trials of this of enabling and basically running machine learning models on data while it's encrypted. And four or five years ago, although the results were fascinating to me that it can be done, it still wasn't practical. So from my angle at RSA, I, I, I say I was doing uh, machine learning, uh, but starting to be concerned on, on the challenges, the security challenges that this opens. Let me just uh, uh, ask you a clarification question, which is uh, when you said companies were starting to put data in the cloud and this notion of security and privacy became important. Did this cut across industries or was it specific to something like, say, healthcare? So I think it's very industry specific, or at least it started. So obviously the more regulated industries are more concerned and the the places where the data is more sensitive. Specifically with RSA, we started to see it more from the financial space but then, yeah, also in the insurance space and the healthcare space. So some of these industries weren't even prepared to hear about uh, even sharing different attacks or even sharing different cases, nevertheless uploading data. Um, others would do it in a very limited way. I think it's over time it's growing. It starts with the regulated industries, but, but today I think it's becoming a, a challenge across the board. And I think we've seen in the last year or two a few incidents where any company should start being concerned about the the implications of their data being up in the cloud. I guess the question is, uh, so you you were observing all of this and you were interacting with people in academia. So why not just uh, build this capability inside the large company? Excellent. So so when I started to look at it, uh, building it uh, or looking at it from RSA, it seemed to me that it's still uh, not practical enough a few years ago. But in parallel, my co-founders, independent of RSA, uh, and as you said, amazing co-founders. So uh, Professor Shafi Goldwasser, our chief scientist, she has a, a Alan Turing Award in the space. She has two Gedel Prizes. She's basically, I think for the last 25 years, she dreamed up this idea that you can analyze data while it's encrypted and proved it out um, uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, Vinod Vaikunathan, our professor Vinod Vaikunathan, our um, chief cryptographer out of MIT, 
has been working on algorithms to make Shafi's work and, and others in the space more practical. And our CTO... He's got a ton of awards too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And a lot of interesting work. The leading schemes are, you know, uh, be, be, are named after him. And, and definitely one of the breakthroughs that making these theories become practical. And also our CTO, Kordrohov, so the three of them, we're actually engaging together in, in different projects in, in DARPA. As you can imagine, the Defense Forces, right. DOD, can be interested in these technologies. And they were actually showing our proof of concepts there and showing things that, uh, what can be done. And when I got familiar with this team through our first co-founder, Rina Shainsky, who was a VC for the last 16 years, and she saw it and she brought me to see it, uh, that caused her to leave the VC world and join into a startup. That it caused me to live basically at the same at the time EMC, and the the, the two of us joined the scientists and formed Duality uh, with the understanding that it's now prime time to commercialize this technology. Um, there's been big breakthroughs that led to the fact that it's become feasible. So a few years ago it was more theoretical. Now it's becoming feasible, and it's time to go and uh, build a company out of it. Also because of the technology feasibility but definitely because of the need in the market. And, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about Cambridge Analytics, but that's something that everyone knows or heard about. And that's just one example. So I'm sure we'll talk in the store about many others, but these were the reasons to form a duality. So basically, so when you say there's such a strong need in the market, so basically, can I describe the need as follows, which is I have a model and uh, you have data, you want to take advantage of my model without revealing your data. In layman's terms, is that, so it's model inference. Yeah, so, so that, that can be a great use case, um, and that's one of them. I would say even more generally, so, so if you're sitting on data, okay, and, and a lot of companies today are data-driven companies, and everyone's trying to maximize the value of their data. So this digital economy, Everyone trans wants to get more out of the data and, and uh, improve it. And if you look at the history, so, you know, 20 years ago, it was all about collecting data. 15 years ago, it was maybe, or 10 years ago, it was all about BI, understanding what trends are in the data. Then we got into this area of uh, machine learning and AI that started to talk about predictive. So all these things were getting more and more value out of your data in your organization. And today we start to see the need to collaborate. So it's not about just what I can do with my data. To your point, it's, okay, what can I do with my data and your algorithm? Or what can I do if I combine my data with your data? Or what can I do if we jointly create a, a, a larger data set with more you know, rare diseases example? Let's make a bigger cohort and really create a, a big enough data sets for statistical analysis. So the next evolution in this world of from going from BI to AI, going from to a predictive world is starting to basically maximize your data and to collaborate between organizations. So that's the data driver. But obviously on the other side, <laughs> if you're starting to collaborate with your data and open up your data, so there's some kind of mismatch here because uh, the security world is all about really protecting your data and keeping it closed and not letting anyone that's not authorized to access it. And if I say there's a big need to collaborate now or you want to leverage an algorithm from a third party, by definition, you suddenly have to open up your data and moreover, this algorithm is going to derive things out of your data that you didn't even know sometimes that it is in your data. So there's like a, a, a double-sorted here of the need to collaborate because of the economy of the data, 
And at the other t- uh, on the other side, there's really uh, this challenge that is uh, a barrier for this, and mainly in, in regulated industries, which is it's not a cybersecurity problem only, it's a privacy problem, it's an IP protection problem, it's obviously a regulatory problem. So there's all these barriers that are basically hindering this advancement. And then really duality comes in this whole world of secure machine learning and so on, comes to basically settle down these things to enable organizations to maximize their data and at the same time uh, protect the data. By the way, that's also the origin of the name duality. So utilize your data and at the same time keep it secret and uh, protected. So uh, so what, what are some of the key building blocks uh, to make this possible, Alon? So I guess one of them would be encryption. Another one might be injecting noise or randomization in the kind of differential privacy sense. So let's let's actually uh, discuss some of these building blocks. So one of the things that we who are not in security are starting to hear about is uh, fully homomorphic encryption. So how would you describe that to a non-technical person? Excellent. So besides the fact that I myself thought it was magic a few years ago, I'll try and give a go at it. So uh, homomorphic encryption is really an encryption method that basically enables you to analyze data while it's encrypted without decrypting it. So, you know, uh, people talk about encryption at rest, encryption in motion or in transit, and this is basically encryption at use while you're using the data. Uh, The best analogy I can try and give to this example is imagine you take a Lego, you put it in a black box, you lock the box, and you give it to someone that can basically just push his hands into the box. He can't see what's going on in the box, but he basically can build something out of this Lego. So he never sees the Lego pieces, he doesn't see the colors, he doesn't see anything, but he goes and he builds something that stays locked in the box. And only the person that has the key to the box at the end of the day can go and take out what's in the box. So homomorphic encryption is basically a way that a data owner can encrypt his own data, keep the key to himself, and enable another party to basically apply mathematical manipulations to this data in an accurate manner, that the result of them stays encrypted or locked in the box, and only the data owner can basically go and decrypt it and see the answer. So, so maybe I'll give you like an example. Let's say you... you so uh, in the machine learning sense, this is mostly associated when you're doing model inference. Is that right? So, it, yeah. A classical example would be doing a model inference. So, yeah, I have data. You have some predictive model. I want to consume your model. I'm not sure, I'm not willing to share my data with you. So I'll encrypt my data. You'll apply your model to the encrypted data. So you'll never see the data. I, by the way, will never see your model. But the result that comes out of this computation, which is encrypted as well, will be uh, decrypted only by me that has the key. And I can basically utilize your predictive insight you can sell your model and no one ever exchanged neither the data or the model between the parties. Just that description, I think our listeners can dream up many, many uh, use cases and scenarios where this might actually be uh, relevant, right? Yeah, healthcare being one, right? So uh, Healthcare protecting, you know, I think genomic data is probably the most sensitive thing we, we've ever had. And, and uh, you know, we, we'll, we'll stay and we'll stay after us with our children. So, yeah, protecting your genomic data and at the same time getting medical treatment or diagnosis based on it. Uh, financial information, obviously, uh, automotive. The automotive industry is now starting to use 
predictive models and our driving habits, our driving locations, all that information is very private. I'm not talking about retail and so on. So all our private information that is constantly being used by the enterprises that collected to derive more value out of it for our benefits and, and, uh, and so on are basically utilizing models. And with this concept of homomorphic encryption or secure computation in general, you can basically start to consume these services without ever disclosing the actual data. So the knock on this fully homomorphic encryption is that it's too slow. Uh, but you are, of course, your co-founders are the leading researchers in this area. So is there anything around the corner that might alter this bottleneck? Yes. Um, so indeed, uh, indeed, you're correct. Uh, I, from the time it was proven out that this can even be done. So like, you know, it, encrypting two bits and adding them took, let's say, half an hour. <laughs> So we got to the stage today uh, through algorithms and protocols that Vinod, our chief cryptographer, Vinod Van Kuntanatan, developed and through implementations in our open source library that uh, Dr. Kurt Roholf developed to the stage that we can run these things in a scalable manner, improving three to four orders of magnitude on what the theory um, uh, started with and getting to stages where today we can already deployed on, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands entities in different models. It's still not something that we can run in real time. So it's still a batch process, but it's definitely something that all our design uh, customers we're working with and are meeting their requirements. Uh, with that saying, it's, as you said, it's mainly focused on inference today. And the, the next frontier of research is talking about really how to do training with these type of technologies. This work being done with us with great results and others starting to do and implement some things in hardware. And uh, maybe most interesting, some of our recent works around applying deep learning to, to such encrypted data is around basically starting to combine different methods. So morph encryption has its pros and cons, multi-party computation has other advantages, disadvantages, and we basically mesh various methods together, which our founders are very familiar with to really derive very, very interesting and breakthrough results. And I definitely think us and others will start to have um, very remarkable results. Even today, uh, for example, we do apply algorithms to genomic data in really impressing scale and, uh, and performance. Yeah, I was going to say, when you said uh, training, you better have a specialized hardware to do that. But uh, you mentioned another building block, which is secure multi-party computation. So Again, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, describe that for uh, people who aren't experts in the field. Yeah, okay. So, so um, I, I think more generally, because there's this need I spoke about, there's a bunch of methods that have, have came up. So homomorphic encryption we describe, where basically each party can encrypt data, obviously multiple parties, and we can apply the computation to the, the data. Multi-party computation, as it sounds, is like each party has a part of the story, and together they do a computation uh, where the data never leaves any of, the, the, of the, the owners, but together they compute something without disclosing ever the data to the other side. So this is like a, a, a protocol where two or more parties can basically each hold some of the data. And if they don't all agree to collide, basically no one can ever investigate to see what was the data. So, so uh, yeah. Alon, is this, uh, so what you're describing here, so let me, let me try to... Uh translate this into machine learning. So I have some training data, you have some training data. We agree to collaborate without sharing. This is starting to sound like federated learning. Maybe there's a difference. So is uh, 
secure multi-party computation a component of federated learning? Again, we can discuss a little bit about the federated learning, but MPC would be a classical example of, again, running a model on, on data between two parties. So like any type of computation can be translated to a circuit, and there's a protocol that the two of these do without really um, uh, sharing the information. So, so, but uh, but, but uh, describe it in a, in a way that our data science people can understand, which is basically, so there's two parties with what uh, uh, data, and then where's the model? So the classical MPC example would be, and there's even been deployments of it, would be, uh, let's say you have many organizations and they want to compute together the... A shared model. A shared, they want to calculate the average salary okay. of, of the people. Right, and right. and no, no company wants to give away its own salary, but together the 10 companies, for example, want to compute the shared, uh, uh, the average salary. So one way would be that each company you know, encrypts the data, sends it to a central place, and using our morph encryption, we can calculate the average salary. Another alternative is that these 10 parties collaborate, use some protocol that they agree about, and at the end of the protocol, uh, everyone knows the, the average salary without anyone learning anything about the salaries of the others. So it's more to apply a kind of computation or a measure to uh, these things. The difference, I think, from federated learning is that Federated learning is basically optimizing a, a function on a given data set and then in a more centralized manner. Aggregating the model parameters in, in such a way that uh, you are not able to reverse engineer the data in the individual party. And, and so if we look at these, so like techniques of multi-party computation, differential privacy, federated learning, homomorphic encryption. So, so each of these, you know, in, in this new world, and they're relatively all new, people like, you know, use them interchangeable. And the truth is that each of them has its own like pros and cons. Some protect the data, some protect the model, some are more accurate, some are less accurate, some you can link data sets, some you can... Some are faster, some are slower, right? So Some are faster, some are slower. Yeah, so I think an interesting uh, discussion could be, you know, which of these methods are like suitable maybe for training, which of these methods are more suitable, you know, if you want to get... Uh, uh, protect the IP of the data. So for example, let's say your IP is in your data and you don't want to leak it. So, so it's not a problem of privacy, it's not a problem of security, it's a problem of protecting your IP. Or, or vice versa, you've developed a model, you've put, you know, tons of millions of dollars, a lot of effort, you've built your model, now you want to protect your model. So you want to run your model on data, but obviously you want your model to be protected. So all of these uh, types of discussions are starting to to arise and fueling this world of secure uh, machine learning, which which um, is becoming a huge thing in the crypto and the security community. Yeah, I, uh, actually, last week I gave a short keynote at Strata New York. I kind of described very very high level some of these techniques, and one of the points I was trying to make was uh, these are the techniques you listed are building blocks, and uh, traditionally we think of them as separate, right? So here's differential privacy. I'm going to create differentially private machine learning models. Here's homomorphic encryption. Here's secure multi-party computation. But I think as you can attest to as someone who's building actual solutions for companies, these building blocks will interplay between each other. And so the final solution may involve all of them, right? I really think that we're heading to something like that. So we spoke about the fact that homomorphic encryption Let's say you're using a, a deep a deep learning network, so homomorphic encryption currently isn't very scalable in terms of the training phase, but it is good in the inference phase. 
and other methods can be good. You know, in the training phase, some some recent works in differential privacy or definitely federated learning may, may come up. So one way would be to train the model using those techniques. And then when you come to deploy it, use homomorphic encryption. Other techniques, let's say you're trying to protect the data itself. You don't want it to leak. You don't want people to re-identify. You don't want to disclose your information. So then you have to use more encryption methods. Uh, sometimes you want you know, you, you use properties of differential privacy uh, actually, uh, you know, to improve accuracy, although the data is noisy. In our case of homomorphic encryption or MPC, the computations are accurate. So, yeah, indeed, there's different properties. And I think the big thing will be to use the right methods at the right time. And that's basically what duality is doing. Um, our platform, our secure computation platform utilizes, you know, the best of each of these methods to address the challenge uh, of the use case and the customer's needs. Of course, for data scientists, uh, the ideal scenario alone is that they won't even have to worry about these things at all, which is basically <laughs> basically uh, uh, the tools they use are secure and preserve privacy by default, but we aren't there yet. You are trying to build tools for companies now, and then there's other people who are building kind of very targeted tools like as I mentioned, differential privacy, uh, differentially private machine learning libraries and so on. So if you were to predict or forecast, when will these techniques and tools just be there by default for a data scientist? When they be, when will these become generally available? Yeah, that, that's really a tough question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the same way, like 15 years ago, everyone was talking about automatic machine learning and, you know, that you just throw the data in and it magically comes out. I think 15 years has gone by. We still haven't seen, people are still talking about it. Maybe today you see the beginning around feature selections and so on. Uh, it's these, these fields are really at the beginning. I, I, it's hard for me to predict how much uh, going forward. We're basically building, let's say, a, a translator from standard Python or uh, machine learning platforms to run on encrypted data. It's hard to predict, but I think quite surely talking, I think in uh, between five to 10 years, most of the computations in, in uh, sensitive industries will be based on using these techniques, not only just because of privacy issues and IP issues, obviously the adversarial ML is starting to come in. Uh, obviously, self-driving cars and other sensitive things can't afford the fact that they may, can be tempered with. So I believe it's uh, it's not here yet, but it's around the horizon and hopefully five to 10 years forward. It will be seamless and everything will be done automatically and as part of this also uh, protected. But obviously you and your co-founders uh believe in it enough that the two of you left your nice jobs to start this company. So at least uh, uh, you're you're starting to see enough demand for enterprises in certain domains and industries that you think that the solutions you're building uh, will have a market. For sure. So, so I was talking more about, you know, the fact that the data scientists will forget about this, all the tools will have this embedded in and so on. And that, I think, is, is time. Uh, today, there's a huge demand in the market. There's hardly any customer we walk into that doesn't have challenges around this. And we have practical things working now. As I said, it's still a way to go to have it uh, running in real time. And uh, there's still challenges around performance and so on in a general aspect. But definitely there's use cases, and we've identified many of them in the financial space, insurance space, healthcare space, that are currently being uh, deploying these kinds of technologies. So the need is definitely here. The innovators are currently adopting it. 
it's still a highly professional kind of a, a task. So we have special data scientists that are expert in these uh, functions. And uh, it will take time to get to the general population of data scientists, but the need is here. And, and the more, you know, regulation has to play a place here as well. But the more, uh, as time goes by, more regulations kick into place. I'm sure we'll see more and more of these solutions. And at some stage, it will become also semi-automatic at least. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned uh, data scientists with these uh, with uh, some knowledge in security, because uh, I'm starting to see that, too, in terms of in academia, at least in Berkeley, Rice Lab, uh, you have people who are thinking about this building tools for privacy-preserving ML and secure ML. And, of course, now Shafi has moved over to Berkeley, so maybe that will even accelerate uh, their efforts. So moving forward, how much of these things that we talked about should data scientists and machine learning people need to know? Or should they just hire a security expert to be part of the data science team? (laughs) (laughs) I think the answer is in the question in some sense. Um, the same as the security, you know, in the last years, everyone's talking that it has to be built in and not bolted on. And there's a huge efforts there. It's still hard to get it uh, working that way. But definitely, you can see if you look at the general software industry, DevOps are now starting to think about security upfront and so on. I think more and more machine learning where people and data scientists will have to be thinking about it, tempering with a model, uh, tempering with the input. But definitely online learning models, you can quite easily, you know, if you temper with the data, cause them to, to misclassify things. You can easily today uh, take images and corrupt them a little bit to, to result in misclassifications. All these things are going to become part of a model's kind of performance measures or evaluation measures. So more and more people will have to look into the space. And definitely when they start to use technologies like homomorphic encryption, like differential privacy and so on, there are algorithms that are more optimal for these solutions and others that are less. And these data scientists have to take this into account exactly the same way like model explainability. You know, a few, 10 years ago, people were just about getting performance out there. Now they understand that you have, the model has to be explainable as well and, and you know, how you adopt it and so on. So security will just become another one of these requirements and evaluation parameters of a successful and stable model. So if I'm a company and I'm deploying machine learning all over the place and security and privacy is important for data, then it should be important for machine learning. So I get that. One of the things you did mention as a motivating factor behind a lot of these is this notion of sharing, which is basically companies might want to share, not share data, but uh, share a model without sharing data and things like that. So how much of that is real in the sense that when you talk to companies, you're actually hearing this? Or how much of this is just, hey, uh, we have this technology that's good for this. Maybe we can convince companies that they actually should be sharing. (laughs) (laughs) So it it may be, you know, if it's a little side answer, so so, uh, correct me, but we can like look at a few industries. Let's look at the healthcare space. So the healthcare space, there's two big things there. For example, one is uh, dealing with the rare diseases. So rare disease is something that by definition is rare. And in order to start to analyze it and get statistical significance, you want to combine multiple data sets. Sometimes they're from different countries, definitely different clinics and so on. So that's a lot about sharing data. At the same time, 
in the healthcare space, for example, uh, pharma companies that are actually out there to price their drugs, test the efficacy of their drugs, and so on, they don't have the data. The data resides at the healthcare provider space. So the pharma company is basically one who analyzes data of the healthcare provider. They're not interested necessarily in the raw data. They're interested in the results of their analysis. But obviously, healthcare providers can't just go and, and share and, and sell the data. So this is one, I would say, the standard way of sharing. But there's a more interesting way of sharing. And when we talk about data collaboration, typically people think about really enlarging the cohort. But, but think about the fact that you basically, because of you sharing, you're adding more and more features. So, so let's take a, an entity, a human being, and let's say you want to start linking maybe his wearable information to his purchasing his information, to his clinical information, to his genomic information, to insurance and so on. So we're starting to look at if you want to look at the breadth of entities in the world, of people in the world, and you want to combine data from various entities, obviously it's a huge risk for us as people that there'll be a central entity that can combine these things together. And accordingly, there's a lot of regulation to prevent it. But still, there's a lot of value if you could combine it. And using these techniques and using, like, for example, the duality platform, we combine clinical data with genomic data on the same entities. We call it data linkage, uh, wearable data with clinical data. Obviously, we can combine purchasing data with financial data and so on. So it, it starts to open up a much broader world because you can basically start to add more and more features and more and more uh, domains of data to the same entities. And then, of course, this enlarges the value you could derive out of machine learning. And I think that's maybe the, the interesting uh, sharing models that today, uh, correctly so, are very sensitive. And with these types of technologies, we'll be able to unlock, basically unlock the potential with this without risking privacy or um, confidentiality of uh, people. Actually, as you were uh, as describing those examples, I realized that actually... Uh... One industry where this might actually be useful, this whole sharing, is ad tech. Because uh, in uh, online advertising, w- w- uh, there's two dominant platforms, Google and Facebook, on one side, right? So, and then on the other side, you've got all these ad agencies who, you know, don't actually know how, uh, you know, they want to know how uh, how the price quotes that they're uh, getting compare with the uh, other ad agencies and so on and so forth. So maybe there's a way for them to collaborate without revealing all of their detailed data uh, with each other to get better visibility into what's actually happening to their ad campaigns inside these platforms. And then the second example I kind of thought about, which is, uh, I think, the classic one, which is fraud detection, right? So company, uh, I, most of us have accounts with many, many financial services institutions. and so. Uh, None of them have visibility to what we're doing, but similar to kind of, I guess, your example about wearables, right? So if we can somehow stitch this together without the companies having to reveal all the consumer data, maybe they can build better fraud detection models. I don't know if these are things you've come across. So spot on both of the examples. Um, I'll take the last one. So, so really... Um... Fraud is one example, but the classical use case there is anti-money laundering. Oh, yeah. yeah basically, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you compare between banks and no bank wants to disclose the information on their customers. But if there's an investigation on this use case, they obviously have to uh, reveal uh, some stuff. And so, yes, uh, use cases of how can you really analyze across banks on an entity without disclosing the data or the entity 
or use cases that, that come across. Ad industry, definitely. Recently, there was a publication of a, an, an ad agency basically co- connecting ad data to a point-of-sale data. So you can start to measure accuracy of online advertising versus point-of-sale purchases. So there's a whole breadth of things that can open up. But obviously, and I have to emphasize, uh, our privacy as people and as organizations is at risk here. And, and that's why, luckily for us, it's not going forward. But with these types of technologies, uh, we can unlock these capabilities and yet at the same time not you know, totally compromise our uh, privacy or, or many, in many cases, it's our IP, if it's our models or the data we collected with a lot of hard uh, effort. So with that, uh, this has been a great conversation. So our listeners are, have now heard some of these uh, buzzwords in security, homomorphic encryption, secure multi-party computation, differential privacy, and uh, they might be hearing more about these things in the years to come. Thank you, Alan Kaufman. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. You can follow Alan Kaufman on Twitter at Duality Tech. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.